You're listening to Good Lad Unscripted with your host. <laughs> Welcome to Good Lad Unscripted, the podcast. I'm Terry Goodlad. Uh, I am your lone host today. My wife, Anna, is tending to our four small children. I don't know what they're doing out there. They're not making any noise, which is always nerve-wracking, but I know Anna's on top of it. I do have a very, very special guest uh, appearing by phone from the Great White North from Canada, my country of birth and origin, uh, Mel Bobasell. Hey, Mel, are you there? I am. How are you doing, brother? Good, man. Good. Real good. Uh, now, just to give a little bit of history here. First of all, today's show is brought to you by, and we were just talking about this, Mel and I, uh, the Black Bean Coffee Company, blackbean.coffee, uh, that you can go online to that website right now, add your name, uh, and you'll be on the mailing list. We will be opening that Friday at very latest Monday. Just waiting for a couple things to come in, and then we'll be selling coffee, and it's absolutely amazing coffee. you got to try it. Uh, also by blessedbodywear.com and, and a Silver Bullet Anti-Aging. Uh, Mel and I go back, we can say decades. <laughs> We're too old. We're in our 60s now. Uh, Mel and I used to work together. Mel and I were partners. Now, we're not talking in the biblical sense. Uh <laughs> That would be actually PC now. To no, we were actually cops together. We were partners in the on the uh, police department and worked together for a couple of years. I think we were the only two cops at that particular point in time that ever caught a drunk driver while walking the beat. Right, Mel? I believe that is the record we hold. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we managed to find this guy and he got caught up in downtown traffic and he was drunk driving and we we uh we were walking the beat and we caught him at the next light and hauled him out of his car and locked him up because he was doing something very illegal anyway mel and i both left police work roughly around the same time mel had this deep burning passion for flying uh back then mel you had your your fixed wing uh, so fixed wing, there's rotary wing and fixed wing. Rotary wing is helicopters, fixed wing is airplanes. You were a fixed wing pilot at the time, I remember. Uh, you were actually my instructor for a little while. Uh, and then you left, after you left the police department, you got into rotary. Can you talk about why you made that transition from fixed wing? Why did you not just become a fixed wing pilot? Because you already had the hours, you were trained, had your commercial license. Why did you just not go that direction? Why did you go with helicopters? Uh, I guess basically I, I, I was sort of fascinated by, by helicopters and the type of work they did. And basically the lifestyle, you know, um, with fixed wing, it, it's good. And, and, you know, sometimes I look back and think, you know, maybe it would have been a better route to go. Um, but I, I was, as you, as you said, I was a, a flying instructor there for a while at the Regina Flying Club, and it was all good, but I, I just, I don't know, I just had a burning desire to try the helicopter. And uh, so I did a 60-hour conversion on the, from my, my commercial fixed wing license to uh, commercial rotary wing, uh, and then I did a turbine endorsement, which uh, allowed me to fly the, the, well, some of the turbine helicopters. Um, and then I started beating the bush uh, looking for work. Now, now so, helicopter pilots, I, I, my understanding always was that those jobs are few and far between. Was that the case when, I guess it all depends on the market fluctuations, what's going on. I know right now, because, uh, because of the oil issues up in Canada, uh, all the oil field stuff, which uh, traditionally 
employs a, a lot of helicopter pilots. All of that comes is basically come to a screeching halt. But what were the job prospects like back when you got your license, Mel? Uh, it, it was. It's you know. It's always. It's always been difficult to get that entry level job because if you can imagine, you know, you're showing up uh, at a potential employer's door with a you know a freshly minted helicopter license. Most of them, if you go just the helicopter out, you have 100 hours in your logbook. Uh, I had less than that. I had 60 hours, you know, helicopter time, uh, and about so I had maybe a total of 300 hours aircraft time. So you're, you're kind of an untried entity. And so, you know, a fellow's looking at you saying, you know, I'm going to put this man in a helicopter with three or four of my, my trusted customers. I'm going to give him my half a million dollar helicopter and send him out into the great unknown. Uh, so you have no track record. So people, people always value that experience. So it's very difficult. I, I heard a, at one point I heard a, uh, uh, that about 10 to 15 percent of the people who actually got a helicopter license never did work. And I don't know if that's true or not, but I do know that that does happen. So the entry level jobs have always been difficult, and you're right, it's, it's very much tied to the economy and, and cyclical. Right now, uh, you know, I've been away from it for a little while and trying to make some inroads again, but uh, because of our economy up here, uh, exacerbated by the fact you know, the pipeline situations uh, right. and COVID, this COVID-19 didn't help anything either. So it's, it's, it's very difficult at the moment, I, I would say, from Leesham, where I, I, I'm sitting. So would you do it again? You know, if you, like right now, would you recommend that a young guy, you know, wants to fly helicopters? Do you think that's a good direction to go or no? You know what? I've had a few young folks ask me that over the years. And basically what I, what I say to them is, if you have a burning desire to fly a helicopter for whatever reason and nothing else will do, then I would suggest that you do it. But if you're just looking for a, a kind of a decent way to make a living and, and think it might be interesting to fly helicopters, uh, I would suggest that you, you don't. Um, I mean, there are a lot of positive sides to it. You know, I've, I've, I've had lots of adventures. I've met a lot of characters. <laughs> trust me, and, and, you know, supporting logging and, and, and the oil patch and that sort of thing. Right. You know, I've watched uh, I watched herring spawn on the west coast of Vancouver Island. I've watched the gray whales run. I've been on glaciers. Uh, all of those things. So from the adventure standpoint, um, nothing that I've done other than that compares with it. But from a practical standpoint, if you want to put it that way, uh, you know, you're going to spend a lot of time there are some jobs that are the exception, but they are few and far between. But if you're going to be a general helicopter charter pilot, you're going to spend a lot of time away from home, in particular in the summers, because that's when the fires are on and that's when the demand is the highest. So from a from a, a family life standpoint, it, it's very, very difficult. Um, you know, uh, so, and then for every hour that you're flying, you're probably going to spend two hours doing some other things, whether it's maintenance or, or um, administrative or you're, you're trying to market yourself and that sort of thing. So there are, there are some drawbacks, but if you're looking for adventure and you're looking for uh, an interesting way to make a living, that, that's, that's a pretty good way of doing now, it. Now let's talk a little bit about the adventure. You've got, right now, you've got over 8,000 hours uh, pilot in command on, on various different helicopters, which should just give you a point of reference. Um I mean, I know guys that are in the Air Force <laughs> that fly 
you know, F-16s that have got maybe half that, you know, so that's 8,000 hours is a lot of hours. Uh, would you agree? You know, it's, it's, I know guys that got, uh, yeah, I've got that have 20,000 hours, uh, and they've flown pretty much every, every type of helicopter known to man. So for me, what I did is I, I flew charter, uh, for a few years and then I got into the, what they call the pilot operating. So, uh, I was operating gas wells, compressor plants and then that sort of thing and using the helicopter to get around. So in that world, you know, 8,000 hours is, is a fair amount of time. That's probably one of the higher hour guys around, I, I would guess. But if you're looking at, you know, general charter, 8,000 hours is, is about middle of the road, I would say, because there's a lot of really high hour guys out there. You know? Gotcha. Now, you're not, you're not doing, when we talk about what you're doing, and here's the adventure part, but you're not flying around a city or you're, you're up in northern Canada, like up north northern Canada, um, doing things like oil field maintenance, fighting fires, uh, supporting uh, heli logging. What, what other, like, tell me, tell me what you did and then give us a couple juicy stories. I know you've had a couple crashes and, and, and I've heard the, the story goes that, you know, if you're fly helicopter, it's not, it's not if you crash, it's when you crash. So I want to talk about, about the kind of stuff you've done and some of the adventures you've had. And then, uh, you know, the crash thing is supposed to be a very real thing. It's a very real and very common thing for, for anybody that flies helicopters. Is that not so, or is that just a myth? Well, you know, there are, there are, there are folks that, that, you know, have gone a lot of hours and, and not crashed for sure. Uh, there are those of us who, who did crash. Um, I don't know. You know, it's, it's, it's a high risk situation there in helicopter flying, you're kind of, I, I always sort of put it as you're defying the odds because the only time that you're going to really, and, and again, there are some jobs that are the exception to this, but generally speaking, the only time that you're going to fly to and from a prepared pad is when you leave at the beginning of the job and when you come back at the end of the job. So other than that, I mean, you are sandwiching these things into, into holes that are not a whole lot bigger than your, than your, than your blade lengths. Your, your disc size, uh, you're landing on, on off level, you're landing on snags, you're landing in all of these places. And so, so the odds are against you. So all day long, what you're doing is you're flying around and you're trying to mitigate the risks. And like anything, you know, there are risks there. But, you know, my first job um, was in Yukulit on the west coast of Vancouver Island. Um, and I had, uh, they gave me about 20 hours in the Hughes 500. And I, I did the pilot proficiency check with the Ministry of Transport, and and off I went. And I remember I was with the base manager there for about a week, and then one morning he wakes up and throws me the keys to everything and says, "Well, yeah. you're the base manager now. I'm going long." So <laughs> this is November on the west coast of Vancouver Island, <laughs> and so my first job was I had to pick up a couple of engineers and drop them off at three thousand feet in the Ursus Creek Valley uh, in the rain. And I had to do a tow-in, which, so I, I get these fellows and we're flying out there in the rain and I, I get up on this and I got a standard, I got a vertical down through the trees and I find this block and it's kind of off level and, and there's a log there. So I got the toes of the helicopter on this log and it's wet and sloppy and things are banging around and bouncing around, you know, and, 
and I mean, I'm so nervous that my legs are so tight. I can, I can, I can only control the pedals by moving my ankles because my, my knees won't work. <laughs> so, and then, and then you're dropping these guys off, and and so you're losing 200 pounds at a time, and you only do this with very experienced people because if you suddenly lose 200 pounds and you're in those kind of confines, that things may well happen to you. Okay, so I, I think now, when you say lose you know, 200 pounds, you mean when it. somebody steps off the bird, uh, the the bird weighs 200 pounds less, so obviously it wants to lift up, right? And you and you have to prevent that from exactly. happening. So, exactly. So basically what you're doing is you're doing the stowing. So that helicopter is, in fact, in flight. All you've done is you've flown it up against something. Right. Uh, you know, log or something. You know, we used to draw, used to draw people off. Um, when they're opening followers in particular, when they're opening up cut blocks, um, I mean, the first couple of times after they get going, they make pads, and so it, it like becomes easier. But in the beginning, you know, you're you're just you're just you're towing these people in on on talus slides on rocks. You know, you've got your helicopter nosed up against the side of the mountain, in essence, and your blades are running probably two or three inches from that mountain side or a tree or something. So it's a game of feet and inches, and that's what you do on the West Coast anyway. That's what you do all day long. Uh, you know, when I when I came to work and the boss said, guess what, Mr. Luckyhead, you you're, you get to work with, with these uh, timber cruisers for five days. And then, oh, well, lovely. Because when you went to work with timber cruisers, you were working all day long. And because they, they, they're looking to survey these, these blocks, and they, they never want to walk uphill. So as they're looking at the block, you're trying to figure out where to put these people, and and really that's what you're doing. You're, you know, you may put a stump, you may put your skid on a stump, and you're holding while these people are climbing off. So there you lose. So what happens is if you lose 200 pounds, you have to take that off because you, as you as you're there initially, you're holding enough power to keep yourself tethered to whatever you're on, right? For lack of better words, and then you're holding. But as as you're losing a couple hundred pounds, the power demand becomes less. So you need to drop your collective a little bit so you don't fly away, in this case, into the mountainside. But as you're doing that, <laughs> you're, you need to change your, your, your pedals configuration because now you're making less power demands. And so what you're doing is you're, like, you're flying. You, you, you may look like you're stable, but you're managing all right. these things. And, and what you're explaining, just to sort of put it in layman's terms, is when you're going and you're basically creating a work area, um, nothing is, is made yet. So you're just landing on whatever natural rocks or logs or whatever is there. But, uh, because somebody has got to fly in there, drop somebody off to actually make a helipad to land on. Right. And so that's what you're talking about well, is you're, you're landing on the side of a mountain, uh, which you have to be level. <laughs> and so the, the blades are, are nearly touching the side of the mountain or trees or whatever you're saying. Um, but you have to get into those places. And then as somebody steps off the bird or gets on the bird, uh, that changes the weight. So you're fighting that all the time. So, so it, it's sitting there looking like it's hovering or just touching the ground, but it's still flying and you have to make all these adjustments as you go. So it's pretty nerve wracking stuff. So it's not like just cruising around, you know, as the, the traffic news copter sort of thing, right? No, it, it's, it's a whole, it's a whole different thing. thing. And that, absolutely. I mean, you, you're in kind of a hover, it's called a toe in and, and you know, you, you, your helicopter's flying, but it's up against the mountain. So these people can, can get, get off. off. And what you're doing is you're dropping in this case, you're dropping followers off to one or two or three of them. So they go there. And then once they're off and you back away and you go down to the service landing, 
and you get uh, you have a couple, two or three saws with some gas and all the rest of it in a net on depending on the day, but sometimes you're on 130 feet of long line, 180 feet of long line. And that's so long line. That's the rope hanging the underneath the helicopter, right? The long line. That, that is that is right. Yeah. So that's vertical referencing flying. So what you do then is you you take these saws and they'll call you in and you present the saws to them in this net so they can start to, to do their job and make a, a spot for you to come back and then they start they start doing their their, their falling. So that's that's what happens, you know. And and then the thing about that is in the West Coast um, in the winter time, if anybody has any experience <laughs> with that, you know, it's not. If you wait for a good, one of my bosses told me that if you wait for a good day to fly in the West Coast in the wintertime, you will never fly. You'll never fly. Yeah. And that's, <laughs> that's, that's, that's almost true. So you're, you're dealing with extremely uh, conditions of extreme reduced visibility. For example, so when we get these pads uh, established up there, so, you know, I would, I would bring these fellas to work in the morning and I'd be flying down the valley and it's reasonably clear but your ceilings may be 800 feet. The problem is that your pads are way above that. So what you're so saying is just, again, in layman's terms, in layman's terms, what you're saying is uh, the ceiling is where the cloud starts. So you can fly under that and you can right. see fine, but where you have to fly to is up in the clouds. And so you lose all your visibility when you're going there. Is that correct? That's absolutely. I, I sort of equate it to if you, if you, um, Take one of those glad kitchen catcher bags, you know the white ones. Yeah, and uh, stick it stick it over your head and try to drive to town. And I, I do that. I do that every second day. Thursday, Mel. I do it every second Thursday just to stay sharp. <laughs> right, right, right. So times have not changed in that regard. Then, um, so what I would do then in the use five hundred, you're flying from the left side, jet ranger from the right. So you you open your door. And you climb the hill sideways, and all you can see is is the hill there in the next tree. So you know where your pads are. So you climb the hill sideways, and uh, then you find your pads. You slide on the pad, and you might have say three guys with you. <clears throat> so two guys get out. One guy in the back seat stays with you, and he opens the back door, and he's on a headset. Now he's watching your tail because you have to back down. And while most of the most of the tree growth is is pretty much the same size. You're always dealing with those, they call them school marms. So those great big cedar trees, you've seen them standing there, and they're, they're quite a bit taller than the rest of the, the trees, and they're hard like rock. So if you happen to have the misfortune of tagging your tail loaded with one of those, it's going to spoil your whole day. So you're backing down, and all you're, you're, you're facing the hill, but you're backing down in a way, and all you can see is, is that, and he's watching the tail so you don't stick it in one of the school marms. So you might do that four times to get all your, your people up there. Right. And then the last time, either the guy walks up and you don't go back or you go up and you get time to sit there for, for a couple of hours to wait for it, then you do it that way. But all day, every day, and, and you know, timber cruisers, same thing. I mean, you're going into these, these holes that are barely uh, much bigger than your helicopter, um, you know, and you're, you're fighting bad weather and all the rest of these things. That, that You know, that's West Coast flying. Uh, in the winter, in the summer, you know, the scenery is, is absolutely second to none. And, you know, you're, you're seeing the ocean, you're seeing all these trees, and the waterfalls. I had a, had a fishing hole out there that probably nobody has ever fished in. I do, you know, catch and release with these trout kind of for, for hours, you know, while I, while I was waiting for my cruise. So, and then when I worked the West Coast of Vancouver Island, I would put my uh, 
know, cruisers out or just, we, we had uh, log and road reclamation. So uh, I put the crews out and they'd do their surveys and do whatever they had to do. So I'd have a couple hours. So I'd, I'd park the machine on the beach and just walk up and down the beach. And, you know, it was, it was uh, really, really quite an adventure. Yeah, I can imagine. But then you're trading that. And if, you're, if you're a family man, you know, while you're doing that, you're away from your family sort of thing. So there's, there's all that trade off. Right? right. Right. Now let's talk about the, uh, you had two crashes. I want to, I want to hear about the crashes. What happened? <laughs> yeah, this is always hard for us to talk because it, it, it injures our pride. <laughs> in day, but you know, what happened, happened. Uh, so, uh, so one of them was in a 500 and I, I, uh, was teaching myself cedar, cedar shake blocking, and I don't know if you know. Much no, what about what is what cedar is, shake is, blocking, Mel? What is that? Yeah. So what that is 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 after after the, the logging takes place, there's there's a whole bunch of stuff left behind, and these are little pieces of wood and all the rest of it. And so a lot of the stuff is cedar. It's either red or yellow cedar. And what they do, it looks like firewood is is what they do, and they they, they make either either cedar shakes or cedar uh, shingles out of it, right? So they, they so what they do is they, they cut this up and they, they, they stack it on the hillside uh, like a big pile of firewood. It looks like a, if, if farmers out there, looks like a big stook of bales. And with the 500, it's supposed to weigh about 800 pounds, but uh, yeah, generally that's about 1,000 pounds or 1,200. Yeah. And they wrap a rope around the middle of it. And so what you do is you, you go up there with the helicopter with, with a, a line, either 50 feet or 100 feet, depending what it is, and on the day in question, I was working with a 100-foot line, and you go up there, you fly up, and the time is money, so you got to move as fast as you can, it's production long lining. So you go up there, and the guy's standing there, and, and you, you kind of sort of slowly swing the hook at him, and he, he, he attaches the rope to it. There's a little loop on the end, and he hits the, if you do it right, as, as, as your hook is going by, he, he, he attaches that loop to it. And then when you see that, you pull it tight, and then as you're pulling tight, he's got a stick and he beats on that rope so it tightens so that everything doesn't fall apart. And then you turn around and bring this down off the mountainside onto his service line. Uh, and basically, it, you know, <laughs> because of the weights involved, it's, it's almost just a controlled crash down the side of the hill. You're, you're, you lift it off and then you're just sort of following your load down the hill. Oh, gosh. And when you get to where you want to be, you see your, your landing come between your feet, then you you sort of cycle it back, you, you bring the nose of the helicopter up, swings the load forward, and then you follow it down. And just as it touches the ground, you punch it off. You can't drop them from too high because then they get rocks and stuff in them and right. it destroys their saws. But if you spend too much time kind of setting them down to get angry because you're paying for the helicopter by the hour. So I, I was teaching myself this, and I was actually doing pretty good. And then I sort of got ahead of myself, and I, on the return trips, I was going between these two great big cities. And as you as you turn, you, you got to turn over your hook, otherwise it swings. So I, I got a little bit ahead of myself, and I, I, I swung the hook out. So as I go in between those two trees, unbeknownst to me, it was not following me right behind me. It was off to my right a little bit. And so what happened is it, it hit the tree, and it kind of wound itself around the tree and then pulled tight, which is a very dangerous thing for you to have happen. Um, so what happened then is I pulled the line tight and it let go, but when it let go, it, it sprung up and the line coiled itself up and it hooked in the tail rotor. And uh, so now I'm in a very precarious situation because I'm in maximum climb speed, climb power. I've got very little forward airspeed. 
um, maybe 200 feet above the ground. And now the line took my tail rotor, wound itself up, and it ripped the gear and gearbox right off the back of the machine. Oh gosh! So now I have no. Yeah. So now I have no. I know I'm under high torque situation. I've lost my anti torque. Um, my my uh, balance is way upset because I've just lost how many however many pounds way at the end of the helicopter, and uh, I'm in some pretty serious trouble there. Yeah. Beside me, behind me, big, some big trees, and there's all these things. So this thing, it started to spin, you know. And and you know, I'm going around and around, and in the radio, I'm hearing somebody yelling, "The helicopter's on!" And thinking, "Which one?" I'm still here. I'm like, "Oh, they must be talking about me." <laughs> so you know, so some of this was happening very quickly, but some of it was really, really slowed down. Yeah. And, and God was with me that day because, I mean, you know, myself, now I'm in some serious trouble. So I'm spinning. I got great imbalance, and I don't know. So as I'm going around, I see this area where which is seems to be lighter green, and it, it seems to be lower. So somehow, I'm gonna, I've got to get there. So I, I roll the throttle down the ground. I drop my pole, and I'm kind of what they call out of rotation. So the blades are not making any lift, but they're, you can still glide. for still spinning, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so somehow the, the, the spinning, and again, God was with me that day because the spinning stopped enough that I'm, I'm kind of doing a uh, right-hand arc in that direction, and when I get there, um, I just did what I was trained to do. I, I pulled back on the side, like brought the nose of the helicopter up, stopped the forward airspeed, and then I dropped it, and now I'm sitting above these, what turned out to be poplar trees, but because, of course, now the helicopter's not making any power, and I can't, I can't go anywhere because I have no tail rotor, it's sinking. So as I'm sinking, I'm, I'm starting to pull up on the pole to kind of cushion this. And it was working pretty good until I got down into the trees, and then I started hitting these, these poplar trees with the blades, which are still running on the ground idle. Yeah. So, you know. It was working I mean, good until it wasn't. Oh, yeah. It was working real good until I started in the street. And then, and then, I mean, there's, there's drop lying every which way, and I'm going, oh, and I'm, I don't know what I'm doing there. I don't know. So I'm pulling, I'm pulling, and it, and it was actually going pretty good. And then the tail ended up, it got stuck in a branch when it was proper trees, so it ended up vertically facing the ground. Yeah. And so the last, I don't know, 10 or 15 feet, I'm going like a big old saddle lawn dart, right? Yeah. I'm going, oh, and I go up against the, the ground, and it, it stopped. So now, in essence, I was leaned to this helicopter up against the tree in there. And it, I mean, it's still running. All my, my warning lights are going beep, 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 and the turbine screaming. So I, I stopped it. And uh, then I hear, you know, drip, 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 because the fuel ladder is, is spreading a bit of a leak, I guess. So there's fuel in there. And I'm, so the door was already off. And then see the shake block. And so I took my helmet off, threw it in the corner, and uh, undid my, my harness pretty much face planted myself like up against the dash. And then I crawled out of there and I'm, I'm standing there looking at this thing and it's, it's leaned up against a, a tree and the turbine's kind of smoking and, and uh, the first aid guy, <laughs> the first aid guy comes screaming up, running up to me and I actually had to calm him down because he's out and shot and scared he's going to break my neck. He's, are you okay? He's screaming there at me, you know, and I'm, I'm going, oh, oh, oh. So anyway, and then so that was pretty much the end of that. So, uh, I had to phone the boss. He was really happy to hear about that. Yeah. And uh, so about so about three days later, I had to go back up there in another 500. And 
so I, I, I get to the hangar about six in the morning and I fire this thing up and it's sitting on this, on this uh, cart. And I must have pulled on that pole about five times before I could finally get myself to go because I'm, I'm pulling, I'm going right in the skid and I'm going nah, back down. So it, it took me probably 15 minutes to get myself back in the air there. And I did it, so I went back up to this place, and then one of the things I had to do was swing some of the trees out of there that they cut down to get my previous uh, triumph out of there. And then so it took a while, but then, you know, you kind of you kind of bounce back to it. Um, and then the second time I was, and this I, this I can't explain, but um, I, I was landing at a hangar up way north of Port St. John that I'd been on over, over, over the course of 10 years, probably 22,000 times. Um, it was slippery, and I'm thinking about just that, the other thing, and I tagged the, I tagged the door, and I got a little too close, and in, in, in fixing that, I, I came back, and I, I cycled a little too hard, and I came up too hard, and I, I tagged the overhead light and lost part of my blade, and the whole thing just went to... So that, that, I mean, that one was, I don't, to this day, don't understand that. That was way, way out of character for me. Yeah. Um, it's one I don't of those know freak it ones. Tap on the shoulder or, yeah, tap on the shoulder. I mean, and it, it, it sounds stupid because it is stupid. Um, I can't explain it. Uh, it's out of character. It's just one of those things when your mind gets full of other things and you're not, not to think about helicopters, you know, getting back to working. You got to understand that if you go do that, you've got to come to work every day and be there. It's not one of those things, and I'm a prime example of that, where you can say, well, you know, I'm going to just put in a half effort today or I'm going to think about something else, and I'm going to, because very soon, as happened to me, these things will remind yourself, remind you that they're, in fact, helicopters. And, and if you, with an airplane, you can take off and you can, you can set it up with your trims and all the rest of it, and you can sit there and watch it go. With a helicopter, if you take your hands off the controls for one second, it's off doing something right. that it's not supposed to do because they're inherently unstable. Different kind of machine. Now, with yeah. all, with all yeah. the hours you've got in, in the air flying helicopters, do you, you know, 8,000 hours, is it is it out of your blood? Can you stop it? Are you done? Um, you know, right now, I mean, it's, uh, honestly, it, it, to me, it's become, it's not, it's not a passion it's not an adventure, and I'm just speaking for myself. I know guys that, that you know, probably three times my hours and just eat, eat and sleep this stuff, and you know, God bless them. Um, for me, it, it, if I went back, it, it's a job. I don't really have that much of a passion for it anymore. Yeah. Um, you know, and I, I would go back and do it simply to, to make a living. But if I can make a living doing something else. You do something uh, else. I would. I would do that. Yeah. Just briefly yeah. now, and I and I know you've you've done a bit of this. Just real briefly, firefighting. What I I've been told that that's probably the most dangerous thing you can do in a helicopter is fight fires, and you you did that for quite some time. What what is that experience like? What What are you battling? What What is yeah. What is Where's the risk there? Well. Yeah, I, I don't know if I would agree that it's most dangerous. I, I think what I did most dangerous is, is working in, in, in the logging industry with these timber cruisers and fallers and that sort of thing because that's a game of feet and inches and, and the weather is always, well, not always, but you're, you're, you're battling with really reduced visibility. You're dealing with horrible, horrible weather conditions and, and all the rest of that. Uh, but, you know, fighting fire is not without its, its challenges either. And the biggest thing is that when, when if you're on these fires, especially a project fire, 
what they call them. And I, think, I think that's what they call them. Uh, you got to understand that there's a lot of aircraft around, fixed wing and helicopter. Right. And there's a lot of radio traffic going on. Uh, you've got lots of crews on the ground. Um, you know, depending on what you do, I, I remember being on a fire uh, up just in the southern Yukon, and I was what they call initial attack group. So uh, it was me and the jet ranger and three guys, and you know, they're there. So our, we were the initial attack. So if there was a smoke, we would go out there, um, circle the fire. He would, the fire boss would call in whatever they, they needed to know. Then I put them on the ground, and and uh, they had their pumps and stuff, and I would hook up my bucket and you try to put the fire out before it got too big. So we were up there and, and what happened is there was a lot of thunder cells floating through and so the wind was changing direction constantly. So I was bucketing and at one point I had to go get my crew because they became trapped in between a, a big fire in this little swamp which was about knee deep. And so I ended up, I had to go in there three times uh, as quickly as I could to get them out of there and the third time, I mean, I'm sitting there on the ground, and they're grabbing my door and putting it on, and there's, there's sparks floating in the cockpit in front of my eyes, and I look over my shoulder, and there's a wall of flame, probably 30 feet high, maybe 30 feet behind the helicopter. You know, and uh, you know, once you're finished, I mean, I got snot sickles because I'm kind of allergic to smoke, and my eyes are running. Right. <laughs> my face. So, you know, it it, 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 it it can get that way, but the, the biggest challenge is that you, you're around a lot of other traffic. You're, the radios are going constantly. You, you really got to. On the other hand, if you if they put you bucketing a fire, it's kind of good because you sort of work against yourself, you know, uh, timing your runs and seeing if you can turn this fire and maybe maybe put it out yourself. So there's some satisfaction to it as well. I'll bet there is, yeah. And I mean, uh, doing what you're doing, saving those lives, getting those guys out of there—that's uh, that's some true hero stuff there. I mean, it's it's very very risky, very very dangerous because you're not you don't get to pick. You know, the route you want to go or anything like that, you just you just do the best with what you've got, right? Well, and by the way, if anybody is up by Swan Lake there in, in the Yukon and they find a pair of aviator sunglasses in the middle of nowhere, they're mine and mine. I would like to have them drafted. <laughs> Thousands of miles of wilderness there, I'm sure. They're going to spot your sunglasses. Yeah, well. Uh, and doing the oil field maintenance, this is the other thing. You know, you think about it, oh, just this cushy helicopter job for an oil company, right? And But... <laughs> I mean, you sent me some utterly amazing pictures, even video footage. It's just gorgeous up there, northern Canada. But uh, everywhere you went, you had uh, a rifle with you, AR-15, something in, in with you because of the dangers of the wildlife, right? So when you're, once you land and you go to do your oil field maintenance stuff, um, you got to be looking over your shoulder all the time, right? Well, yeah, there, depending on where it was, I was up in a place called Manning, Alberta, and there's, there's, I mean, there's a grizzly every 12 feet. I mean, there is. And, and they're, what they've done, because there's so much hunting up there, is they, they equate, right in the fall, they equate a rifle shot with a dinner bell, because, you know, a lot of people lose hunt. They're used to people, and they're everywhere. Right. Uh, I got, I was stopped twice. You know, I, it, I was up there doing that kind of stuff in a lot of places for a number of years. But over the course of that time, I was stopped twice by black bears. Um, you know, I used to, what I used to carry was a, was a, a 12 gauge shotgun uh, pump with a, with rifle slugs and and, and uh, SSG. Never shot any bears because um, I didn't have to. I don't believe in killing things just for that own sake. But um, I shot at uh, bears twice just just to get rid of them. 
And I remember once I was up this North Fort St. John and there's old site and we had uh, metal walkways because it was so swampy. But I came out of this uh, receiver building and, and I'm, I had the shotgun over my shoulder and I'm, and I'm walking. I catch something moving out of the corner of my eye and I look over and it's a black bear and it's about a two-year-old. And those are the worst because they're not necessarily vicious, but they're curious and they don't know who's who in the zoo and they want to see if, you know, you taste as good as you smell kind of thing. Right. And, uh, so he was paralleling me, but he, he was coming at me at sort of a pie shape. And the first time I saw him, he was maybe 30 feet away from me. But it's funny because I'm walking and he's, he's running. And as soon as I stopped and looked at him, it was kind of like, you know, he's kind of whistling and looking in the air and kind of looking at his nose like, you know, I'm not really, I haven't forget that I'm going to do anything to you. And it's kind of funny. Yeah. So I thought, okay, so I, I did this about three times and, and he's getting closer to me. And every time I look at him, he, he do this little routine of, you know, looking away, looking pretending like and, I'm uh, not here. <laughs> yeah, don't worry about me. I'm not here, you know. Uh, <laughs> so finally, I, you know, and I'm yelling at him, and he's not going. So finally, I, you know, I just fired a rush so I get a seat, and off, off he went. I never saw him again. But then the second one, I, I was further east of there, and we had this big header system where all these pipelines come together. And part of our duties, we used to send pipeline digs, and you'd have to wait for them. And so I'm, Got the helicopter shut down. It's in the middle of this big clover field, and I'm sitting. It's a beautiful day, and I'm sitting on the on this header system. And this brown bear <clears throat> comes out. I guess she was older than the two year old. This is it wasn't a grizz, but it was a brown bear, and it's eating clover, and it's doing circles, full circles around this header system that I'm on, and I'm yelling at it, and it's not moving. So finally, I get off this header system, and I'm, I'm walking sort of toward it, and I'm yelling at it, and it's not going anywhere. And then at one point, it stood up. And, and was looking at me, and I mean, it's pretty big bear. So again, I just sort of fired a shot beside its head and sent it away. And then half an hour later, I received this big, and I, I get everything. So I start the helicopter, and I fly off in the direction that this bear ran off in. And this thing was hiding below the berm, just out of my sight, on its belly, watching me. So oh, God. I, I think, <laughs> I, oh yeah. I, I think it, I think it had plans, you know, uh, yeah. for me, but I, I don't know if you're going to get that far. But it was it was kind of unnerving to think that that thing you know, had been watching me the whole time. It, I mean, they're 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 wild animals, and they're, they're hungry. They do. Right? So, and, oh yeah, and your meals on wheels. Yeah, probably looking at. Yeah, it's probably going to be thinking if this thing tastes half as good as it smells, I'm in, I'm in luck, right? <laughs> <laughs> you think you smell pretty good, do you? <laughs> <laughs> no, I just, I just mean they're, they're, they like to have carrying and stuff, so to them it's probably smelled. The stinkier, the better it tastes, I guess. <laughs> yeah, exactly. This thing's been curing for a while, you know. Well, listen, Mel, it's, uh, it's been awesome talking to you, man. It's uh, this, this whole... Uh, I know we could talk for days about some of the experiences and stuff you've had. It's been a real adventure. It was awesome working together with you as a cop. And then of course we reconnected years later after uh, you did a bunch of flying. Actually, I saw you after police work. Uh, you know, we've seen each other a few times. I saw you after you had that, that crash, you were in Langley getting that helicopter fixed and you had to fly it back. And I remember we visited then and, it was very sobering for me to find out that you had just crashed and survived. And, uh, and it's just like, dude, you know, be careful. But uh, I'm glad you made it to 8,000 hours. I think we got to look at the next chapter, though, bud. We're getting to be old men. we got to do something uh, a little less crazy. Leave that for the young guys. What do you think? 
Yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that, man. I think, uh, you know, I kind of say in tongue in cheek, I think I've had guardian angels petitioning for early retirement. And, uh, you know, <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> you need some cushy job I, flying I dignitaries around or something. Yeah, <laughs> something. Yeah, yeah. So, but I, I, I look back in a, a time together with a great deal of fondness, and I, I think about some of it. That would be a, well, maybe we shouldn't. I, I don't that, think, I, I think, you know, I think you and I doing a podcast about police work might be, uh, yeah, I think we'll just we'll keep quiet. We, maybe, maybe we should do a book. Maybe a book. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think anybody believes half the stuff anyway. But no, no, no. But anyway, no. we were the good but guys. You know, we we never did anything wrong. Never did anything illegal. But uh, but we sure no. had lots of fun. We had lots of fun. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Lots of laughs. You know, just as an interesting aside, if if we got half a minute, I. Uh, after I put that 500 down, the people from, from uh, the Hughes Helicopter Corporation came to me and they said, we'd, we'd like to talk to you about that crash. And I said, sure. They said, because what happened is they had a few of those like that, but uh, nobody had ever walked away from it alive. So, wow. Um, God, God was with me that day, for sure. So, yeah, they, they did tell me that. So, so uh, yeah, God was with me that day. Yeah. Sure. Wow. That's, that's, that's a huge deal. I can't even imagine yeah. what that would feel like, you know, going through something like that. And, and especially because I think, you know, every, everybody will tell you that flies helicopters that you're, like you always say, you know, you're always fighting against this machine that's trying to kill you the whole time, you know, and that's just the nature of flying yeah. a helicopter. And so, uh, you know, to have that experience, you know, when you're starting to crash like that, to have the coolness to go through the procedures that you were trained on and not get freaked out because you think you're going to die, you know, because I'm, you know, I, I mean, I remember those days in police work where we've had, you and I have had, you know, our handful of, of incidences where we thought, well, we're not going to come out of this one alive, you know, and, uh, and you do, but <laughs> yeah. you, you, you know, you do your, you do what you're trained to do and to be able to do that, you know, yeah. flying like that out in the middle of nowhere is, uh, it's very commendable. So, Always had a lot of respect for you, Mel. You're, you're, uh, you're, uh, you know, <laughs> they might look at just because you smell like good lunch, you're not an easy lunch for anybody. So <laughs> I, I know that. <laughs> well, listen, everyone, thanks for listening. That was my buddy, Mel Bobasell. Um, thank God you're here, Mel. We've got a lot of miles yet ahead of us. Thanks for listening, everybody. Good lad unscripted the podcast. We'll be back in a couple days with another episode. Like, like. My city got a hold on me. My city got a hold on me.